0: When we have people who can stay in the community for a long time, we build relationships and that community builds resilience. It's a more thriving community. That's really challenged here because of the housing crisis.
1: At Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air.
2: Welcome, thank you for joining us. I am Susie Stadler, an architect by profession and the executive director of At Home With Growing Older. I'm also the producer of this program, At Home On Air. For us, the meaning of being at home is twofold. First, it refers to how we can live and thrive in our home environments. And second, how we can come to feel at home with growing older in our wider communities and within ourselves. Tonight's conversation is about our wider communities and the topic of the conversation, we are all neighbors in one big community, can be a call for action for all of us. Welcome Karen Nemzik, Director of the Housing Justice Initiative at United Way, Bay Area and formerly long-term Director of Rebuilding Together San Francisco. Karen and I met many many years ago and i'm very pleased karen that you're joining us for tonight's conversation because i can't imagine anybody else who brings such a multifaceted perspective to affordable housing so thank you for being here now karen You have had a long and varied career in creating, and I'm emphasizing creating affordable housing, even though you're not an affordable housing developer. But can you tell us a little how this has shaped your perspective on affordable housing and has brought you to your current
0: position? Thanks, Susie. And thank you also for inviting me tonight. It's really a pleasure to be here. I think my housing journey probably started when I first moved to San Francisco. I was a social worker and working at a homeless shelter for families. And, you know, just seeing the impact of not having a stable place for a family, seeing the impact on the children, on the parents, and also walking to and from the tenderloin to my job every day and seeing people who literally had no roof over their head. That really, I think, started my journey on thinking about housing as a right, thinking about housing as something we all should have. You know, speed up a few years. As you mentioned, I worked at Rebuilding Together San Francisco for 10 years. And we were sort of on another end of the housing spectrum there. Rebuilding Together works with a lot of folks who have lived in their homes for a very long time and they want to age in their homes. But things happen, right? A roof gets a leak, a toilet stops working, there's holes in the floor we get unsteady on our feet and need help moving around the house. And so Rebuilding Together is doing home modifications and repairs that help somebody stay in their home for as long as they want to. And I think what I really liked about that was the practicality of this. Now we would call this NOAA, Naturally Occurring Affordable Housing, in a sense, because we're helping folks stay in a house that is affordable because they've paid their mortgage or are almost done. You know, that's a very practical way to preserve affordable housing, is to just keep people in the homes they're in with relatively inexpensive home repairs. And then I left Rebuilding Together at the end of 2019. COVID gave me a nice year off in 2020. Then I ended up helping Alameda County launch a community land trust. And that was interesting because that was a whole different way to look at housing, was a land trust where a community owns and manages the land. And that makes the house on top of it more affordable. This particular project was providing housing for people with serious mental health challenges who mostly are living on disability payments and need affordable places to live. With a community land trust, there's a deed restriction. This property remains affordable in perpetuity and the houses provide uh, a sense of independence for the homeowners and for the residents. That kind of got me thinking about how many options we have for affordable housing, particularly in the Bay Area? So when this position turned up, I just started here in April of this year. Director of Housing Justice really kind of looks at a bigger picture. It includes the conversation about why people have become unhoused. Why is it that Black and brown families have a fraction of the family wealth that white families do? What were the things that happened, particularly in housing over the last 50 years that prohibited black and brown families from having housing or from accessing housing or accessing the wealth from housing? So what I like about the United Way project, what I like where I am now in housing justice is I'm working with very smart people who are advocating for housing. We have a lot of community partners. I'm working with a lot of folks who are advocating for building more housing, who are actually building more housing And it lets me have a much broader scope, a bigger picture of the challenges to affordable housing, but also the opportunities.
2: Yes, thanks, Karen. And I'm glad you're at this position now. It seems like the perfect sort of fulcrum of what you have been doing. So thank you for your work. We all know there's an affordable housing crisis in the Bay Area, but what's the reality? What's the picture of affordable housing? Who can still live here? And how does this affect not just the individual, but whole neighborhoods and the way the city feels and the way we live and age in the city?
0: Yeah, we come up all these different reasons for why we have the housing crisis. People move here because it's warmer. People moved here, you know, in the '90s, people were saying everybody's moving here because the welfare benefits are higher here. There are a lot of things that we're making up about why we have the housing crisis. Frankly, it's money. And when I say that, what I mean is that there are several reports showing us that fewer than one in five people can afford to purchase a median-priced house here in the Bay Area. That's 16 percent. One in five people can afford to buy a house, which means four in five people who live here in the Bay Area need to rent. That's caused the demand for rental housing to skyrocket. And so now we have a lot of folks who are renting. There's a market rate that's high, but I would posit that two in five people, another one of those five people can actually afford the market rate. So out of every five people in the Bay Area, three people need to live in affordable housing. They cannot afford market rate rent and they cannot afford to buy a house. These are folks who are teachers and social workers and childcare workers and the bus driver and artists, people who work and run small businesses in the community, people who are running laundries and cafes. So a lot of us need to be in rental housing, but not we can't afford the outrageous rents that are market rate right now. Another thing we need to look at, we can't forget about wage increases. While rents have been going up and up and up, our wages are only going up slightly. So we have this big gap in between here about how quickly housing prices rose and how slowly wages have risen. To give you an example, in Alameda County since 2010, home prices have increased 124% while wages have only increased 53%. So this is simple math. You can't have money you don't have. And when the gap is right there, everybody who doesn't have that gap needs to be in housing that's not market rate priced, needs to be in housing that has some sort of subsidy to allow them to live here close to jobs, close to their family, close to their schools. So I I think it's math. It's prices have gone up a lot. Wages have not. Just another quick stat. 90% of the people who have been surveyed on the streets in the Bay Area said they could not afford housing anymore, and that's why they lost their home. It wasn't drug addiction. It wasn't mental health. It wasn't, you know, all these other things we think of. It was simply that they could not afford their house payments, whether it was their home or their rent anymore. Yes. And it's also true when
2: I look around in my neighborhood, and I'm sure that's true for many people, including myself, my neighbors would not be able to live in my neighborhood anymore. You know, if they had to buy today, we would all have to move. So, you know, yeah, it's just affordable because we bought decades ago in the Bay Area. So just to keep this in mind, how this affects really the definition of what affordable housing is, I think, is really important. What can be done to change this? I mean, if this continues, I don't know what will be the future of living and aging in the Bay Area.
0: You know, I have some hopeful things, but I wanted to address, too, like what happens to my neighborhood when everyone leaves. That's really important. We have a block party in my neighborhood, and I love that because I get to know people. I get to know who's here. A bunch of new families are in my neighborhood right now. And we had the block party and introduced myself. How are you? What do you do? I want to be able to say hi to you. When I see you going down the street. And that's a nicety. But neighborhoods where people know each other are neighborhoods where people check in on each other. My elderly neighbor across the street, if I don't see him for three days, I'm going to knock on the door and see if he's OK. You, know, you can't get out of the house. Do you need me to go get groceries for you? So when we have people who can stay in the community for a long time, we build relationships and that community builds resilience. It's a more thriving community. That's really challenged here because of the housing crisis. It's interesting. I just recently came across a statistic that in San Francisco's big cities, homeowners only stay an average five years in their home. Whether that means when they moved in, it was their starter home and it was small, and now they have two kids and they're moving to another neighborhood in a bigger house, or it means they've left the Bay Area entirely because it's too expensive. But that kind of transience, if you have people in our big cities only staying five years, and we have renters who are living at the whim of their landlords and the rent, it creates really transient communities, and we're risking our resiliency, we're risking our Ability to thrive as neighborhoods when this is the case. What is hopeful right now? I think that there are a lot of innovations in housing and different ways to look at housing that are happening. The land trust model is flexible. I think it's a great model for families who are in a working income. They know they're not going to make a lot of money selling their house, but they know that they're going to own their house and they're going to stay there for as long as they want to. And very often that's long enough for their kids to stay in the same school, K through 12. So I really like land trusts. Home match. I think that's a lovely concept where if I'm an older person in my community and I have three bedrooms because, you know, my kids have moved out and I can take in a young person to live in my house and be my housemate. And that works on so many levels, right? We're having an intergenerational conversation over the dinner table. We have someone who, if I fall or I'm not feeling well, I know someone's checking in on me. We have an affordable place for a student or a teacher or a nurse to live. So I really like that home match model. HUD has a home modification program. They're actually putting $30 million into that this year. And that helps organizations like Rebuilding Together do home modifications to keep people in their homes. But, you know, the thing that I am most excited about and I think the biggest opportunity we have is changing the way we look at and talk about affordable housing. I think that we have demonized, stigmatized affordable housing, those two words, affordable housing. I have sadly been at city councils where people, residents in the neighborhood were telling the city council members, oh, that's affordable housing and those are criminals and those are pedophiles and those are crazy people and we don't want them here. And it's absolutely wrong. It's not an educated, informed response. You know, when we looked at the numbers earlier, three in five people in the Bay Area need to be living in affordable housing. So as individuals, we need to educate ourselves and really learn about affordable housing, learn who builds affordable housing, who lives in affordable housing and welcoming that affordable housing into our communities, welcoming a diversity of people into our neighborhoods. It changes who you talk to in the conversations that you have at the block party. It changes who's able to live in a neighborhood that's close to public transit so they can get into their job. It means everybody is living in a place where they can walk or take a bus easily to get their groceries. Because a lot of these higher priced neighborhoods have all that. They are close to transit. They are high opportunity communities. But why should somebody who already has high opportunities be the only one to live in that community? We want to create, not want, we need to be able to welcome housing at different levels of affordability into all of our neighborhoods.
2: Most young adults, the children of my neighbors, my son would never be able to live here. So affordable housing really has wide implication for intergenerational living and families staying together in the Bay Area. What I am always concerned about is that people actually have access to the resources you just mentioned, like where do I find out about land trust models? Or where do I find out how much the community is actually building affordable housing versus other housing And how can I
0: advocate for this? Well, thank you for that question, because that (laughs) makes me think of my favorite thing right now. So everybody who's listening, get your pen and paper out. So the Partnership for the Bay's Future has a housing readiness tool. And if you just Google housing readiness tool, it will take you there. That is a place where you can see what your city has been mandated by the state to build in terms of housing. Every five, six years, there's a housing element and the state looks at all of its jurisdictions and looks at who's living there and what incomes they're at. And they create a plan that says, here is how much housing you need to build at the extremely low income level, at the low income level, at the moderate income level, and at the above moderate income level. And so every five years or so, states have to get their element and they have to build that housing. And now this new housing readiness report will show you in your city how much housing you need to be building for extremely low income. And it will also show you how well your city is doing against your goal. I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert. None of your cities are doing well. The average in the Bay Area, the way we're building, we are building an average of 200% of our goal, so twice as many homes at the above moderate income rate. And we are building around 50% of the required homes, of the needed homes for anybody under that income. So we are overbuilding expensive housing. In some communities, four times more housing than we need at the higher level. And we're building 20, 30, 40, 50% of what's needed at the affordable level. The more of us who become educated and see what's happening in our own communities, I think it's a great tool for calling our city managers, our council people and saying, why in Berkeley are we not building enough extremely low income housing? I think what everybody is thinking right now too is, well, we can't afford to build affordable housing because if we're building subsidized housing, we're not getting enough rent to pay Mm. for the cost of it. That is true. There are some state funding programs, there are federal funding programs, there's private funding, but yeah, money is definitely a challenge to this. One thing that gives me hope for this year, we have a Bay Area Housing Finance Authority that was created a couple of years ago and they are looking to put a general obligation bond on the ballot for 2024. This is a bond that is regional, nine counties in the Bay Area, and it will be a property tax bond. But the money that is coming out of this bond is to be used for affordable housing in jurisdiction. So this money is coming from all the counties. It's going into one big pool at the Bay Area Housing Finance Authority. Then they are distributing it back out at a prorated level to each county. So each county is not getting the same amount. They're getting an amount based on what was raised through their own property taxes. But that money needs to be used on building housing. 50% of it, let's say Solano County gets, needs to be used on the production of new affordable housing. About 21% will need to be used on preservation. A small amount, 5% right now, will be on protections. That is primarily because general obligation bonds are limited. They need to fund capital projects. I think that learning about that bond and voting for it in 2024 and telling your friends to vote for it, people will say, oh, my property taxes are going to go up. For a million dollar home, you will be paying a hundred dollars more a year for your property taxes. So, you know, it's couch cushion change in the big picture. And as a result, if this bond passes, the estimation is this bond will create between 10 and $20 billion specifically for housing in the Bay Area. So I am hopeful about that, and I am, and United Way is really part of encouraging people to learn about the BAFA bond and what this could do for housing in the Bay Area. Thank you, Karen.
2: There is room for hope, but this all takes time. So in the meantime, how can we make adaptations, small moves that sort of stem the tide a little bit?
0: One thing that I'd recommend is find out what's happening in your neighborhood on housing. Get to know your city's housing plan, show up at meetings and be in support of affordable housing. Housing gets slowed down by a lot of things. Right now in neighborhoods where residents make a stink about it, they can shut things down. I think it's important to educate ourselves about what's happening in housing and welcome affordable housing in your neighborhood. A couple of years ago, we were at a thing and we were talking about, this was maybe 10 years ago, and we were talking about the density in San Francisco. San Francisco, we hold really tight to our single family home quaintness of the city. It's not realistic. When we're creating so many more jobs right now in the Bay Area and we're just not creating the housing, we really have to look at density now. I think right now there's affordable housing trying to be built specifically for seniors. I know of two properties over the last five years that had a soup. One got shut down completely in San Francisco in the Forest Hill neighborhood because it was affordable. And the neighbors thought, despite the fact that it was housing for seniors, that a bunch of criminals were moving in and they shut it down. So one thing we can all do is become allies and advocates for affordable housing, encourage HUD to keep funding. I know I'm doing I'm doing a little bit of a biased pitch, but look at organizations like Rebuilding Together who are keeping people in their homes. Like what are we doing right now to keep people in their homes? How are we helping people? How are we helping with rental assistance? You know, after COVID, we know the economy hasn't bounced back. So how do we make rental assistance something that doesn't seem stigmatized, but instead is a way to keep our communities resilient? And I think we think about the broader Bay region as one region. Think about you know, folks in Solano County are neighbors of ours in Alameda County. People in South Santa Clara County are neighbors of people in San Jose because we're all being impacted by this housing crisis. We're all feeling the ripple effects. Nobody is not. So how do we just really try to look at our community more as a neighborhood and welcome all of our neighbors in? I mean, not all the cities and communities
2: separately, but really thinking of them as one big Bay Area, the collaboration which has to happen at this level is really important. Communities don't shift the load from one to the other, but are working together. So it seems like the Bay Area Finance Authority is set up to do that now.
0: Yes, exactly. It's trying to level the playing field. Yeah,
2: on an individual level, what we also do here at, at Home was Growing Older with our Aging 360 program also helps people to stay longer in their homes by making very simple home adaptations because often it's somebody not being able to take out their trash, which then makes them move out of their home and really abandon an affordable house for them. That's sort of the The bottom line: the simple things make the difference. There's lots more to talk about, but I would like to encourage people to ask questions. Karen shared a typical example of what you just talked about. Karen: She says, since 1983, my rent has risen from 275 a month for a two-bedroom in an in-law apartment above a private home in Portola Valley to. $3,400 3400 a month for a two-bedroom house in Palo Alto, and that is far below market. That's pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, it really is. And that's why I think another thing we can all do, because a lot of us are renters, is educate ourselves on tenant protections. What are the laws that we need to know about? I still believe, and in my experience in the Bay Area, I have had very decent people as landlords. So I do want to say that, that I do think that a majority of of private landlords, not the big property management companies that own most of the units in San Francisco, but I do think there are a lot of people who are good people, but I think it's still very important to know your rights as a tenant and to go get legal advice right away if you think that your rent is going up unjustly. Yes. Erin actually had a
2: second comment in this area, there is a huge community of people who are creatives who have only been able to remain due to landlords, you not know, gouging tenants with astronomical raises for 50 years. And then that landlord dies and there's nothing even close to what they were paying to afford. Our job compensations do not raise to even close to the cost hike. That's another thing, this long-term relationship like Erin just mentioned, between landlords and their tenants, which then just disappear when the landlord passes or moves. Yeah, I have seen other examples with this too, that these kind of relationships
0: really are important. Yeah, I agree. I've been reading a couple of things about private sector along with nonprofits trying to incorporate studio space and live space for creatives. And I think that would be amazing to see that get a little more traction. Yes. Are
2: there any programs you could also share from United Way? I know you got a pretty sizable grant not too long ago, which you distributed among community organizations. Are there any of those organizations which do work in housing? And if yes, what kind of work do they do?
0: Yes, we did get some very generous funding from Mackenzie Scott a couple of years ago. It was before I got here, but United Way did really turn that around and increased funding to a lot of our partners. So a lot of that funding went out in rental assistance money 21, 22, 23 for folks, especially when the rent moratoriums ended to keep people in their homes. We have a couple programs that can support people. Our Spark Point program is really financial coaching and financial education. We do some emergency assistance and shelter work, but within the housing justice, We're working with Homeward Bound Marin. They are building some housing. We've given them a couple smaller admin grants for some veterans housing that they're building in Novato. We supported Habitat for Humanity. They're building some transit-oriented housing in Walnut Creek, which is really cool because that is getting people of different incomes into a high-opportunity community, walking distance just a block from BART so folks can get into the city if they're working there. It's a lovely neighborhood near a walking area. We're working with an interesting organization, the Emerging Developers Program, with a partner, the Richmond Neighborhood Housing Corporation in Richmond, California. And what they are doing is providing a training for people who want to be housing developers who are Black, Indigenous, people of color. And it's a really interesting program because it's getting people who have been traditionally knocked out of or not included in the development process into development. They're doing it with sort of three benefits from it. So one is we're getting folks who have historically not been in development into development. Two, they are doing a lot of single family home and small unit acquisition and rehabs, which means they're getting properties that either have gone on the market or are on foreclosure or auction, and they are rehabbing them and then selling them so that they are making some money on it, but they're also learning how to be developers. Richmond Neighborhood Corporation also has a first-time homebuyer program. When the timing works out, they can have someone from their emerging developers program learn how to become a developer, acquire a house, rehab it, and then sell it to a first-time homebuyer in the community. So it's a really nice organic operation right there in keeping the money in the neighborhood. So I always wonder these innovative programs which
2: make sense and seem actually fairly simple. Why don't they get adopted by all cities? (laughs) Why doesn't it spread like a wildfire? It's like, wow, this works in you know Richmond. Why can't this work in San Leandro?
0: Oh, there's so many reasons. I think you need someone really determined to do it. I think you need a city and funders who understand the, the history of racial injustice in the housing industry and understand why it's important to lift up people of color in the industry, why it's important to give the opportunities there than to somebody else in the community right now. And there are, frankly, some cities and communities in the Bay Area who aren't going to do that. So, yeah, I think that all the time, Susie, like, that's a great idea. Why isn't it happening everywhere? And I think you need a super strong person to launch it, get it going. You need to get your allies. And then you need to have funders who are willing to get you started and understand that it's important. Going back to rental
2: assistance, I want to ask Gabriella's question. Is there any push for rental assistance as a permanent line item
0: in the state's budget? I have to say, I don't know. I will look into it. I do know that we are... Planning to offer some rental assistance grants to our partners later this year. And I think it's important until we have enough housing, you know, it takes a long time to build affordable housing. Maybe we have to take some of our affordable housing preservation or production money that goes into housing vouchers and goes into rental assistance while people are waiting to get in to that rental housing. That's not going to be a very popular thing to try to sell, but I think that's the reality is that people can't afford it right now, are going to continue to not be able to afford it in the three to five to 10 years it takes to build the building in their neighborhood, in their community. So how can we do that? I think it's a good idea. Yes. I'm also
2: wondering, you know, housing is part of the puzzle to keep somebody aging at home or aging in place in their community. There's also home care, support for older workers, what I also call home away from home, which means civic institutions like senior centers or libraries that support aging in place because they provide social connection. As affordable housing gets to the next level in the Bay Area, if there's also sort of an understanding of this neighborhood fabric, which has to come with it because it is part of healthy living and aging in our neighborhoods. Do you know anything
0: about that? In terms of any housing that is specifically looking at long-term and aging, you know, aside from things that say they're senior housing, but I think what you're saying or what you're hinting at, Susie, is when we build affordable housing, are we considering multi-generations? Are we considering housing that will grow old with the residents? So how are we building housing that can be adapted easily as my needs to navigate around my house change and I need grab bars and maybe I need a a chair, a wheelchair to move around. Maybe I need to walk into my tub instead of stepping over a bathtub. It's a walk-in shower. I really like the Kelsey and I like giving them a call out. The Kelsey is housing in San Francisco that's being built right now, right next door to City Hall. It's looking at primarily people with physical disabilities, and it's radical inclusivity. And they are building each unit as an accessible unit. Maybe this makes sense to all of you already, but I really had an aha moment when she said, the reason we're doing this is if I'm in a chair, I use a wheelchair, And I want to go visit Susie in her apartment down the hall, but she does not have an accessible. I can't go to her house to dinner because her door's not wide enough. I can't use the restroom in her house. The Kelsey, not only for people who have physical disabilities, it's for anybody, but it means that if I use a wheelchair, I can go visit any of my friends in the building because every single apartment has wide doors, has accessible bathrooms, has a kitchen that I can help cook in. And I think that as we're building affordable housing right now, we can look at it that way, where every apartment, every unit has the ability to accommodate us as we grow older. Or if you live there, do you have that option? Can you say, I actually need grab bars in my bathroom now? Or my mother comes for the weekend every weekend. I need grab bars for when she's here. So I think it's a great conversation to start having with our builders and developers is what does that look like?
2: Yes. And the amazing thing is, it doesn't cost more. It just needs a different kind of thinking. Thanks for bringing this up. Thinking about building affordable housing is also thinking about how can you support small business owners, for instance, in the neighborhood where affordable housing goes? And how can you make sure that the library thrives in the neighborhood? And the senior center, because I do feel like these are all part of the social fabric and part of what makes aging in place and community in an affordable way possible. And I'm wondering if there's some thinking in the sense that you know that you put these two things together: affordable housing and the small business infrastructure and civic infrastructure of a neighborhood.
0: Yeah, I think that Fruitvale down in South Oakland has been successful in that. But yeah, when you're building affordable housing, larger affordable housing buildings, do you have space for small businesses on the base? Do you build in a senior center? It's a great idea. And you have the double impact, or the flip side of that is that when you're building affordable housing, you have a lot more people now in the neighborhood who are gonna visit the dry cleaner, the bakery, the coffee shop. By bringing that density to a neighborhood, you're bringing more people who are going to support the local businesses as well. Yes, absolutely. I'm very familiar
2: with this project at the Footwell BART station, which was a long fought for and very successful project of a transit hub development. And again, it's very interesting that not more of this is happening. I just know that there's another one in planning at the West Oakland BART station. It's another huge project which has been in the making for seven years. and is probably not going to start construction for another two years. So there's a long time horizon for all these projects. And as you said earlier, the more important it is to think about what you can do now to maintain your own affordable housing, to create affordable housing by inviting housemates into your home and by also thinking of your home, not just a private home, but Part of the public infrastructure of a neighborhood. If your friend can't visit because they feel uncomfortable using your staircase, putting in a second rail makes a difference and can keep people connected. Little things which make a difference. Erin said, accessibility does cost more to allow for wider doors and greater space in bathrooms and kitchens. I became disabled and could not use a wheelchair in my current 1928 house. The doorways are only 28 and a half inches wide, and common area rooms are tiny compared to newer houses. I'm now talking with my architect hat on. I know that this is very challenging in existing homes. What I have seen is sometimes there are small things you can do to make Little bathroom biggers, like wall-hung sinks, for instance, instead of a sink with a vanity, by no means perfect, but sometimes it makes a difference. And that also 28 and a half inches wide is way below the minimum of 32 inches, but just taking the door off, you gain another one and a half inches you know, tricks one can keep in mind to make homes a little bit more functional when somebody uses a walk or a wheelchair, but I know it's a challenge.
0: Aaron's last comment about, I'm a renter with a fixed income and I don't have the security of a homeowner. I'm in your boat, Aaron. and we are very fortunate to have a landlord who likes us here. We live next door to him. We've created a nice relationship. I know this is not the standard. This isn't something that's going to help you right now, but it's something that I'm finding very interesting this concept of social housing. I know we don't have time to really go into it right now, but social housing, one version of it in a nutshell is city buys a property, they upgrade it, it becomes rental housing, your rent is based on your income. And because it's the city and they don't need to make money on it, whatever income they earn from the folks in the house they have, and maybe they subsidize it, maybe that's enough and the profit goes into maintaining the building. But it's very popular in Vienna. I think social housing has great potential. The folks who are doing social housing in Europe say, well, you know, we make sure you pay about 10% of your monthly income in rent. That's our bar. And I think about here, where it's 30%, you know, that we should just expect that. That's the standard. I love that the standard is 10% that these housing projects are going on for years and years. You build a community, you build that stability, you get to know your neighbors and you could be a renter and you can feel safe being a renter. Your rent is only going to change based on your income and you're not going to get kicked out. Don't burn the place down, of course, but
2: I'm from Austria, so I know a little bit about Viennese housing projects, which have a long, long tradition there. In this case, the cities are the developers. Does this
0: happen anywhere here? The city of South San Francisco, their city council has passed an ordinance or an agreement saying they are going to study social housing. I think they even have a property that they're looking at to convert to social housing. So South San Francisco is a place to keep an eye on locally. That's the one that is most realistic. Alex Lee, who is a senator around the San Jose area, has a bill that he's pushing, and that's looking at a statewide housing authority raising money, particularly for social housing.
2: It's so important to have this sort of quote-unquote pilot or demonstration projects, which then can serve others to follow as an example in, in their footsteps. Thank you for bringing this up. Thank you, Karen, for being here and sharing your wide array of knowledge initiatives and also your passion. I'm really grateful that you're now leading the Housing Justice Initiative at United Way. We will be watching what's happening there. (laughs) But also thank you to all of you being here. And I just wanted to give a call out for our next conversation on November 9. This will be very different because that's what we do. We bring different perspectives to aging and invite people from all different disciplines. Next will be Joe Good. He leads the Cho Good Dance Company in San Francisco. He will talk about the body as home and how he experiments with aging in his life as dancer and choreographer. So I hope many of you will join. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Susie. Thank you all.
1: This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home with Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at at Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.